This guy's a charlatan. I've got a vibe. I've got a vibe. I got the vibe. How do Michelle? How do you do? Is that what they say in France? No, they say bonjour, 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 bon, bonjour, bonjour, bon, bonjour, 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 Thank you for asking. Yeah. Well, I didn't, but I was going to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to know, did you drink all the wine? Did you eat all the cheese? I ate a lot of cheese. In fact, I ate nothing but cheese, it felt like at one point. But I didn't drink much wine. I don't fancy wine, it turns out, anymore. Oh, mm. okay. I had a little fizzy Cremant, a rosé Cremant at one point. Apart from that, it was all cider or wheat beer. I don't know why. Don't ask me why. But that's what I fancied. I think you drank that because you're returning to your teenage roots. <laughs> that's West Coast coolers. That's what I used to like drinking back in those days. <laughs> West Coast coolers and pre-mixed Coke and, what was it, Southern Comfort, Southern, Southern and Coke. Southern and Coke, was that what you did in the Bay? That's right. But before we go any further, Michelle, we do need to introduce ourselves to our eavesdroppers, old and new. I'm Geordie. And I'm Michelle. And welcome to Eavesdropping. And you can eavesdrop on us. Come on down. Come on in and have a listen. Listen along. That was a little bit sale of the century. Come it on was. down. Come on down. Listen, Michelle, it's been it's actually been brought to my attention that yes. some children have been listening to eavesdropping, which distressed me slightly because there's a lot of swear words. In fact, one small child that I met whilst in France, because you know we've got a couple of eavesdroppers in France. We've got Fran and we've got Anna. Yes. And both of them have quite young children, under 10s, and both of those under 10s from two different families mentioned to me that they were also eavesdroppers. <laughs> One in particular said that she enjoyed the story about the girl and and the dog, the girl who was raised by dogs. I was horrified. So I was wondering, perhaps we ought to do on Patreon a little child-friendly 15-minute episode that children can have all to themselves. That's a very nice idea. I thought you were going to ask me to not fucking swear. Stop swearing. <laughs> <laughs> I know I couldn't do that, Michelle. Without the Fs and Cs, who would we be? I know. Potty mouth. Dirty. Yes. Dirty Bertie. I am worried that children listen, but you know, because also the content is bloody scary, you know? Yeah. I got scared listening to the Premonitions Bureau. I mean, <laughs> I got chills. It's, Did you? You've been scared more than once on this I have podcast. been scared. I scared myself when last time I did a deep dive. And actually, warning listeners, I'm doing another deep dive today just in case you're going to be sad that Michelle doesn't get to talk about her well-researched and in-depth stories because she's great at that, especially true crime and fraud. But today I'm going to be telling you a French story. Wow. I cannot wait to hear that. But let me tell you, Michelle, I had a bit of a rocky time in France. It was up and it was what down. Happened? Well, as you know, one of my family members became very sick at the very beginning and that was quite stressful. But luckily, Jeff is on the mend. So keep getting better, Jeff. We love you. We're thinking about you. So that's good. Meanwhile, at the last leg of our trip, we were traveling along like not quite a motorway, a fast road and there's a crossroads. It just happened that we were first on the scene of a two-car motor crash. Oh, fuck. 
Yes. I should have had a trigger warning before I got out of the fucking car, I tell you what. But when my daughter said there were babies in the car, I <gasps> just found myself next to the car just as the passenger was getting out. And I believe her to be the mother of the two children in the back. There was a, an 18-month-old baby roughly sitting in a chair, screaming and crying, covered in tiny shards of glass. His oh side God. took the impact. He was okay. Everyone was okay. I'm going to preempt this story by telling you that everybody was okay. Oh God. I don't actually know what I would do. And I'm not surprised a lot of people don't know what to do because they're probably in shock as well. Yeah. If you were in America, that's why people just stop and do nothing because it's so litigious. Right. Yeah. I didn't think of that. You know, that's the thing. You bandage someone's head up, do it wrong. They're coming after you for, you know, 10 million bucks. That's not a great end to the holiday, is it? Yeah. We were fucking shaken up. Still am. Still am. It was only two days ago. Yeah. Because that, that stuff stays with you. Yeah. You know, you can't just shake off the impact of that moment in no, your life. Exactly. Can you imagine the people involved? Oh, they'll, they won't be forgetting that moment for a long time to come. No, of course not. And, you know, they're dealing with the aftermath yeah. of all of that. But it really goes to show, like, appreciate life, health, friends, love, yes. everything while you've got it because everything can be taken away in a second. And I know that sounds grim. No, that's how I feel right now. You saw it firsthand. Like, and invest in a more expensive car that has good airbags. Well, that's an upside. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm talking about with my husband now. I'm like, please, can we spend a bit more on a car? I really want to have four airbags. Yeah, fuck, man. I thought you were going to talk about how... You had basically no music for the whole time because your husband didn't get the stereo working. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but I didn't care about the music. It was fine. We had a good time. You're on holiday. You chit-chat. That's what it's for. Yes. Families coming together, playing games, together. talking. Exactly. So there were some upsides to being in France. I had a wonderful time with some old friends who are also eavesdroppers. So hello, Anna. I think I've already said that. And hello, Fran. And watched Fran's band performing because it's all in the summer. They have a lot of uh, marketplace kind of each town has a little summer festival and food and music. And Fran was playing and we were dancing and she got everybody singing, including my kids. It was good fun. But Fran and I had a little chat about a lady that she met on an upholstery course and her name was Guilain and I'm not sure how to pronounce that and it's not the Guilain that you're thinking of, Divadrine. <laughs> Actually, Anna had sent me an article from Vanity Fair called Aristocrats and Demons by a man called Michael Joseph Gross which was written in July 2010 and it's a very bloody fascinating story and I feel like telling you about it, Michelle. Why don't you just go on and tell me? Because I am on the edge of well, my seat, literally, actually. Well, <laughs> so this was a very local story to the area that I was in. Anna has taken me all around the areas. It's basically in, I think I said before where it was, it's in southwestern France. And that's where this story takes place. Exactly where I was, southwest France, in the lot garonne area, and also takes in the sites of Oxford, England. And the timing is between 1999 and 2009. So 10 years okay. this story spans. I can't even imagine where this is going. It's oh. crazy already. Bear with me, my little friend. It's about the recluses of Montflanquin. Montflanquin is a cute little medieval township, which we did visit in the southwest of France and actually looked at a few properties there as well, just to just in case we might want to move to France. Mm. 
and it's about the De Vetrin family, which I'm not going to be able to pronounce properly. Can't do the French very well. But they were an aristocratic family living in a chateau near that town called Chateau Martel. And it had been their ancestral home for centuries. Like it's near the Dordogne. There's a lot of rivers and stuff. It's beautiful. Wow. In late 2001... In late 2001... <laughs> <laughs> in late 2001, Jordi, tell me what happened. <laughs> in late 2001, something changed within this family, the Divadrines, and incrementally, 11 members of that family, spanning three generations, closed the doors of their fancy Chateau Martel to the outside world and stayed within it, becoming known as the local weirdos. Okay. What happened? I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll give you the family tree first. Okay, we've got Guillemetta, who is the matriarch, and apologies once again for getting that name slightly wrong, probably. She was 88 years old at the time of this story taking place. Her three children, grown up, obviously, in their 50s and 60s, eldest son, Philippe, a 63-year-old Shell Oil executive. Then there's Charles Henri. 53, who is a gynecologist or an obstetrician, couldn't quite figure that out. And the girl of the family was Guilain or Guislain. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you pronounce it. 55 years old at the time of this thing. Now, Guilain, I'm just going to call her that, ran a secretarial school in Paris called La Femme Secretaire. Okay. Also in this gang of the recluses were Philippe's girlfriend, whose name was Brigitte Martin or Martin. Charles Henri's wife, Christine, and their three older children as well in their 20s. And their youngest daughter was 16, Diane. They had Guillaume, Amory, and Diane. And Guillaume was 24, Amory was 21. And then there's Gillan's two children, or Gillan's two children, also called Guillemetta, the daughter, 24, and Francois, 22. And also Gillan's husband, Jean Marchand. He was not one of the recluses, but I'll get to that later. It all sounds so glamorous already. I love all Doesn't these it? French names and French women are just so beautiful. I can imagine they're all so just glam. gorgeous. But yeah, and especially if you have money, like French aristocrats, just. Oh, yes, living lovely. in the middle of the countryside near the rivers in near to these gorgeous medieval towns mm. wafting around the wineries and the vineyards and and the cheese going to art galleries and places cheese and cheese. <laughs> but then suddenly they shut the doors this chateau is bloody gorgeous as well mm. anyway so after this exciting and vibrant life of eating cheese and snaffling wine and whatnot yeah they suddenly plunged themselves into isolation, trusting no one, cutting off all their friends except for one man, a guy called Thierry Tilly. Thierry was an odd little 35-year-old man with a pasty face. He had a raspy voice and a shockingly strong handshake. A little bit about this guy. Okay. He had failed to complete a law degree and had previously been in business with two people who claimed to have been fleeced by him. Ooh. And through these people... Tilly met a lawyer called Vincent David, who then introduced Ghislaine to Tilly. Why, I don't know, because at the time, Thierry Tilly had hired Vincent David for legal work, but never paid him. This guy's a charlatan. I've got a vibe. I've got yeah, a vibe. Exactly, right? I've got the Everybody's vibe. Everybody's got the vibe. <laughs> the vibe. But not the Vedrines. They don't have the vibe, because despite 
the fact that this lawyer who introduced Gillan to him, she went ahead and hired him as some IT administrator or troubleshooter, whatever you'd like to call him, at the secretarial school. And by 1999, he was the school's highest paid employee. Oh, my God. <laughs> Gillan's most trusted advisor. So he's well in there. He's a scammer. You know. Oh, my God. I could just... You know it already. He's, you can just tell this dude... I I, look, have you seen pictures? Is he good looking? No. So he's not even like a hot French charming, no. you know. I wonder if he's charismatic, you know. Well, he must be. Well, he, he has to be able to talk the talk because dude's a scammer. Yeah. Well, you just said, is he good looking? So at the time, as you know, because I, I already said, but you may have forgotten, Guillain was married to husband Jean Marchand. Now, Jean Marchand sort of suspected them of having an affair because she had fallen into such a close friendship with him so quickly, given him so much power, giving him so much money from his little silly little job. But she insisted there was nothing going on. And when Jean Marchand then got to know Tilly, he believed her, but still found the man quite troubling. Interesting, because if he's one of these fraudsters, scammers, rip-off, artists yeah they know all the tricks to make you trust them yes they do and they also know all the tricks to make you get over your initial suspicion and your initial yeah. intuition of dudes dodgy What's up with this dude yeah exactly well Glenn's brothers also were impressed by him because he he told them that he would ways of investing money for huge returns and not much capital this is melissa caddick all over oh yes my god. oh my god <laughs> <gasps> holy shit it's fraudsters but so he sidled his way into this family and there was money coming their way in the beginning because these two brothers who were quite you know they they were born into money they worked in high high paid jobs they believed him and they were enjoying raking it in at the time mm. so he gained the family's trust and bit by bit he began to convince them and this is where it goes a little crazy, that they were targets of a plot by the Freemasons and he brainwashed the family into believing that they were a vital link to a sacred offshoot of the Knights Templar. Oh, my God. This is insane, Jordy. I mean... I know. I I feel like... The, you know, because I told you, I I ended up having this cab driver who told me that, you know, the... (laughs) All about the Illuminati, how they rule the world, the Holocaust never happened. You could have told him a few things. But you know what? I just feel like because the Illuminati are secret, there's no way to prove it. There's no way to disprove it. And yeah. this guy is so clever. My God. Well, this is Freemasons, another secretive group that same, he has same, used same. against them. Not quite the same. Not same, but I mean, but same MO in that you cannot yeah. prove or disprove. But the Freemasons are real. They are real. And as we know, because we discussed this on a previous episode, can't remember which one, they started as an actual organization and mm. they are secretive, but they're also out to kind of help in a way, they say. But anyway, they were told that the Devadrine family were told by Thierry Tilly that they were this sacred offshoot of the Knights Templar, and the name of it was, and I'm only going to say this once because it's in French, and then I'm going to call it the English word, Le Calibre du Monde, the balance of the world. That's what it meant. So that's what we're going to call this group from now on. Apparently, the group, the balance of the world group, 
would activate when the world was in grave danger. Very Dan Brown, very kind of even a little bit Q, if you if you like. It is, but also too, like what kind of danger? Because grave danger, like chaos, like now, like end days, kind of wars and whatnot. Because we are facing the climate countdown. And actually, I, I was going to mention this to you earlier about we've got pieces of the glacier falling off oh, no. right now. The rivers here are absolutely like flowing like crazy. Oh, this dear. piece of glacier fell off. They found a skeleton. <gasps> Michelle? They found, they found remains here. And I was what? like, is it fucking Charlie Howe? But this is probably it- more likely to be Adam and Eve or something. That's how long he's been in there. Who fucking knows? But it is end of days in a way. And so <laughs> don't say that. No, but I mean, but this is the thing. I've got to investigate. I mean, they're keeping it quite quiet. And honestly, I've never. I mean, how do you know? Well, it's hanging around town. Gossip. It's not gossip. It's not okay. gossip. This town covers up a lot. I'm telling you, there are guns in the hills here. But anyway, people, <laughs> you know, I, I'm just wondering, like this secret society that activates when the world is in grave yeah. danger. I'm seeing it firsthand. We're in grave danger. You know, glaciers are melting. Skeletons are being uncovered. 1999, 2000, 2001, this is all kicking off, right? So we had millennium bug. There's always something to to threaten us. Monkey pox. Well, that's now and that's not then. I know. There is always something. But anyway, the Freemasons were against this group, the Balance of the World group, apparent group. Okay, just remember this is Thierry Tilly telling them about this group. Does it exist? Who knows? And the Freemasons, apparently, according to Tilly, the Freemasons found this group to be their mortal enemy. And as such, the Devadrine family were in peril and only Thierry Tilly could protect them. Of course. This also sounds to me like the Tinder swindler. I mean, to our new eavesdroppers, we have so many episodes where this is like... It's a parallel here. It's a parallel there. I'm just wondering when, you know, we're going to have a Keith Ranieri parallel a branding or two. <laughs> we do like we do like a trickster and a fraudster and a cult, don't we? We do. Around here. Yeah. But everyone in the family fell for it except for Guillain's husband, Jean Marchand. Smart man. Hence, he was not a recluse. So there was a grand master of this balance of the world group and his name was Jacques Gonzalez, but he was very mysterious and quite enigmatic. You never, ever saw him. But Tilly used to say that he was taking his directions from him and everything that was happening was being directly instructed to Tilly from Gonzalez, Jacques Gonzalez, in their mission. And they had a mission, Michelle, that mission being to search for a treasure trove that Tilly described as so large it would not fit in any room. Like they haven't got enough fucking money. Do you know what? I got an email about this just recently, very similar, um, from a Nigerian guy telling me if <laughs> I just gave my my credit card details, my bank account details, there was a whole room of treasure waiting for me. So, oh my God, it's the oldest trick in the book. And yet these people bloody fell for it. Can I just tell you though, going back to this cab driver who was yeah. like Illuminati, Holocaust didn't exist. He was so incredibly convincing in not convincing me, but he had convinced himself and he was, you just believed everything he was saying because he believed it. And I'm not saying I believed it. I'm saying I, I was listening to him going, if I was vulnerable or 
a little bit lost and you were telling yeah. me all of this, I would be sucked in because he was so convincing because it was his truth. So I can see how people who maybe are maybe a little bit easily led could believe this guy. Who right. knows? Yes. Well, at first, they, so these guys were into it, obviously. I've, I've illustrated that. Now, Tilly had said that the Masonic, the Freemason group, mm. had their eye on the building that the secretary school was in, which was in a really fancy part of Paris and was prime real estate. Okay. Of course they did. And he told the family that the Masons would do anything to get their hands on the property. And now their lives were at risk. So they're really scared. And the thing is, it's not that hard to swallow about the Freemasons wanting that real estate because they are believed generally to be major players in real estate in Paris and southwestern France. So, you know, that's not too big of a stretch. But Tilly said he knew this because he worked at a humanitarian organisation called the Blue Light Foundation. Now, I didn't check to see if it was real. I just assumed it wasn't. Okay. Because he's full of shit. Yeah, dude, dude's a fucking fraud star. Blue, blue yeah. light, honestly, blue light foundation. Do you remember blue light blue discos? Blue light disco. <laughs> <laughs> God, I loved those blue Jeez. lights. That's when I used to go and drink those Southos and Cokes. You'd go down to the off-license, well, what do you call it in Australia? The bottle Bolo. You'd grab yourself a couple of UDLs, which I don't know, that's the brand name for those Southern Comfort and Coke mixtures. Because you'd be all dressed up and have your makeup on or they didn't care. They'd sell it to 14-year-olds then. And then you'd head back up to the blue light. Blue light disco. And the Southo and Coke. With your Southos. All the boys used to dance like Peter Garrett from Midnight Oil, do you remember? Like they were being electrocuted. Yeah. (laughs) That was the dance of the day. No dabs. No, the boys at at our blue light discos, they, you know, they, they had their shirts tucked into their jeans. They had oh, they had the hair nice bit, turned bit out. slicked back. Yeah, they made an effort. They made an effort. Oh, Canberra boys were very well to do. They were a bit more done up, a bit snazzier than the Bateman's Bay boys. But then they'd have their uh, shirt sleeve rolled up with a pack of Winnie, Winnie Reds in there. Winnies? Yeah. What? Winfield, that's cigarettes. At the age of 14? Oh, yes. We had money in Canberra. Oh, Not God. me. but Money. <laughs> money for Winfields. Oh, they're the cheapest fags. <laughs> oh, but if you had a bit extra, you would get the, the menthol because then it made your breath fresh. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Fresh, nice, fresh, minty, smoky breath. <laughs> anyway, around this time, back to the Vadrine family and the secretarial school, which the Masons wanted. And around that time, the head teacher of the school, her name was Martine Gordan. She noticed that large sums of money started going missing from the school's accounts <gasps> and that the school had stopped paying its bills. No. Meanwhile, Gillan, she's becoming paranoid and she's losing lots of weight, constantly wearing sunglasses, and she told all the staff at the school to watch out for Freemasons. Oh, my God. She was so affected by Thierry Tilly's warnings that by 2001, she was seeing Freemasons everywhere she looked, including people that she'd known for ages. Oh, so this is just paranoia and he's feeding it. Yeah. This poor woman. He's fed it. This poor woman. Yeah. She, she can't focus. She's losing it. Losing mm. it. Glenn and Jean Marchand's daughter, Guillemette, got married to her fiancé, Sebastien, in September uh, 2001 in Montflancain, which I went into the church there. It's very nice. I wonder if they got married there. That's where Fran got married. Anyway, it all seemed fairly normal for a wedding. And the weird thing about it was, though, that Tilly had been up with them a lot around that time, but Jean Marchand breathed a sigh of relief when he noticed that Thierry Tilly was nowhere in sight. But... 
Two days after a perfectly normal wedding, Glenn left for Paris to prepare for the school year. And then four days later, she came home in a terrible state, wearing a cocktail outfit, carrying a handful of dried flowers in a gardening glove before giving Jean Marchand his marching orders in the most unusual manner. What? Yeah, she threw the flowers and gloves in her husband's face, then screamed that he was a weak outsider with no soul and said that the flowers which she'd cut from the garden at their Paris home were a sign of Marchand's evil. Oh, my God. She's lost the plot. Yeah. Well, then poor Jean Marchand was totally shocked. It came completely out of the blue for him. And then Galan's brothers, Philippe and Charles-Henri, grabbed him gave him half an hour to pack and put him on a train to Paris. <gasps> and that was it. Kicked out on his ear. Oh, my God. Booted out of the family. I guess it was her money, not his. Well, they shared a life, so mm. I'm sure he worked. And then he realised that their shared bank accounts had been em- emptied <gasps> like a few days later. No. So a few weeks later, he then snuck back to the chateau searching for some kind of clue to discover how the whole thing had happened. And on her computer, he found an email from Thierry Tilly. And in the email, it was telling Gillan to throw the flowers and the glove at him. Tell him that these are the signs of his evil network. Give him half an hour to pack, dot, dot, dot. Oh, my God. It was basically a script which she had performed to the letter. (gasps) What the fuck is going on here? Weirdness, right? So... By this point, the school had gotten into such financial trouble, they'd stopped paying staff. So Glenn shut the school for good and moved herself into the top floor of the now empty building. She was joined by her brother and his partner, Brigitte. So this is Philippe and Brigitte who joined her. This happened to coincide with Philippe's former wife kicking off divorce proceedings because she had heard all the rumours of them acting strangely, of money going missing, things about Tilly... And she thought, well, fuck that. I'm not losing my half of my divorce settlement. Yeah, exactly. So she kicked off divorce proceedings and she got a team of lawyers to watch Philippe's financial movements. And that's when all these shady dealings came to light. (gasps) There were all these transfers being made to a company whose offices included Thierry Tilly and several of the Devadrines. So she was like, fuck that and put a stop Mm. to it. Meanwhile, the rest of the family began still further to retreat from the world and he ordered the family in this shutting out of the world to banish clocks ordered the family to get rid of all their clocks and calendars from the chateau and they became convinced that no normal world rules applied to them including time so they're completely losing their shit visitors to the chateau would look through the doors they'd never open the doors they would look in and see them all sitting around in the dark on chairs just sitting still yeah this sounds like a previous episode where we talked about a cult of two do you remember this this is like a cult of five cult of 11 of 11 okay this this guy this guy is a fucking cult leader it's insane yeah it feels like yeah it feels like a cult Newlywed Guillemette suddenly left her husband and gave all her money to Tilly and she had just gotten married. Then uh, Guillain's brother, Charles-Henri de Vedrine, just walked away from his medical practice in Bordeaux without any notice, leaving all his patients high and dry. And then he and his wife sold their house and their beach apartment 
and gave all the money to Tilly. <gasps> this guy, what has he got over them? Holy shit. Christine, the wife of Charles-Henri, Christine, mm-hmm. she walked away from all her... She was quite high society. She walked away from all her friends in Bordeaux, including a winery owner by the name of Marie-Hélène Hessel. And she tried to... This woman tried to reach Christine for more than a year. And Christine only responded once to say... I can't tell you anything. It's a family business. It's very serious. I may come back to Bordeaux, but in a different way. If I were you, I'd be very worried. Oh, my God. Mm. But you know what? That's that's a creepy message to get because you're like, yeah, I'm f- yes. I am fucking worried for your mental health. What is yeah, going on yeah, here? Exactly. Well, she's sort of indicating that she knows something mm. that no one else knows. Yeah. This is almost like what's happening on a much bigger level with the QAnon. Yep. Like they all feel that they know something that no one else knows. And it's it's isolating. Yep. And that's what you do. You isolate your victims, yep. your cult victims, your fraud victims, whatever you'd like to call them. So anyway, back to my timeline. We're now in 2003. The family have stopped paying tax. Now, the French government don't like that very much, Michelle. So they came down hard on them and seized all the furnishings in Chateau Martel. Oh, my God. So at this point, the family then moved into a house that Philippe owned in the town of La Sue which Anna and I drove through, and it's really pretty, actually. She quite likes it. It's very rural. Mm. I just, do you know what? I can't help just to feel sorry. Like, bit by bit, this family is losing everything. Yeah. Including their minds, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, hold on to that thought for a little while, Michelle, till you hear the rest of the fucking story, because it gets wilder. I'm telling you. (laughs) It's a wild ride. It's the wild ride. So at this point, they are financially... On their asses. Mm. So the matriarch, Guillemetta, made a huge loan to her three children. No. Stupid lady. Well, you can imagine where that went. Well, yeah. Straight to Tilly. Straight into the pockets of Thierry Tilly, of course. That's what they think anyway. They couldn't find any trace of it. So we're, we're still in 2003, like I said. Now, Tilly actually had a wife and two young children of his own and a teenage stepdaughter. They moved to England where they had a flat in London and by 2005 two years later yeah they're all living in Oxford along with Charles-Henri and Christine's eldest son Guillaume okay who is in his 20s right so Guillaume has taken quite a shine to Tilly okay the rest of the Vergines except for Philippe Brigitte so Philippe and his girlfriend Brigitte Galan and her mother Guillaumeta they all stayed in La Salle or Lasso whatever it's called yeah um, but the rest of the family, they all moved to Oxford, living with or near Thierry Tilly. And he ordered them to rent modest properties, work in menial jobs, giving majority of their income to Tilly. So now he's turned them into uh, slaves. Yep. Basically. Yep. What do you call it when you... Yeah. Modern slavery. Well, Modern slaves. Yeah, modern slavery. He's turned this aristocratic family into Serps. modern slaves. And he has actually people trafficked them as well to England. Fucking hell. And do you, know, mad? do you know what? This is frog in the fry pan. Bit by bit by bit by bit, yep. this dude turned up the heat so they didn't even notice. When you look at A and where they end up, fuck, man. Yep. This is insane. It is insane. And they weren't even listening to anyone. Who was trying to talk sense into them? They didn't have anyone apart from Jean Marchand. He was he was taken out quite early out of the game, yeah. so that he would not be an obstacle kind of influencing anybody yeah. else. Yeah, exactly. 
Tilly, for the most part, lived rent-free whilst in Oxford because he would do things like get the property owners tied up in different litigations, like he'd make complaints and stop paying rent and then start legal proceedings. And then while the legal things were going on about these houses, he would live in them and not pay rent. And he kept doing this to people. The third landlord that they had was an Irish carpenter called Andrew Scully. And he found it really weird that all these aristocrats were working at Nando's and garden centres and things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So he, he further, Tilly, further ramped up the importance of the family as members of this Balance of the World group and said that not only were the Freemasons after them, so he's really ramping it up now, he's really having a good time with it. He said it wasn't just the Freemasons they had to worry about, it was also the Rosicrucians, homosexuals, (laughs) homosexuals, and journalists. Oh, I'm after you. I'm after these. Keep away from those scary homosexuals. I mean, what are they going to do? Oh, God knows. And what are journalists going to do apart from dob him in? Well, exactly, yeah. Holy shit. This guy's just pulling shit out of the air, isn't he? He to sure like, is. He sure to is. To just keep them yeah. in line. So as I mentioned before, Chalorie and Christine's son, Guillaume, he became quite enamoured with Thierry Tilly and he was living with Tilly and his family and became his personal assistant, helping him with the work of the Blue Light Foundation. Perhaps I should have looked into it. I'd love to know if it was real mm. or if it was just something that Tilly had started or even this mysterious Jacques Gonzalez or whatever. He just but made it up. N- he just made it up. I feel like he made it up. There was never any sign even of this president of the foundation, Jacques Gonzalez, except the odd bank statement and utility bill that the landlord Andrew Scully would see with his name, with the Jacques Gonzalez name on the front. I'm just going to put this out there. Go on there. Jacques Gonzalez is Tilly. Well, I did wonder that, Michelle, throughout this story. Mm. That's what I was thinking from the very beginning. But let's wait and see what how this pans out. Andrew Scully, the lovely Irish carpenter who was their landlord, well, he found himself caught up in lawsuits as well. This is after Tilly offered to renovate one of the houses that he was renting because I think this guy, Andrew Scully, had a few properties that he was renting to all 11 and Tilly and his family. And at one point he was renting them in exchange for a long-term lease. But they ended up trashing the place and then reported him, the landlord, to public health for making them live in appalling conditions. <gasps> oh That's my how you do it. God, that is every landlord's nightmare. Can you <laughs> yes, fucking imagine? Is. Can you imagine? That gives me chills. And then they stop paying rent and that's how they get away with it. Oh, gosh, he's quite the clever trickster, isn't he? But anyway. He really is. Going back to Philippe, right, and his ex-wife who was digging around in all his financial affairs because she wanted her slice of that pie before it all disappeared – Philippe and Brigitte Martin eventually detached themselves. They they saw the light eventually, thanks to his ex-wife, kind of. But you know what? Like, it sounded earlier as if you had said that she'd frozen the bank accounts or at least stopped money. I don't think she froze it, but she definitely wanted to see what what was going on. And I think everything that he did was being monitored financially. So I think bit by bit, he just realised, this is weird, time to stop. So by 2008, they had pulled themselves back from the Tilly merry-go-round. But it wasn't until the spring of 2009, and bearing in mind, Michelle, this is now 10 years later, 
Yeah. From when he first made his appearance in their lives, when Christine, married to Charles Henri, the former obstetrician stroke gynaecologist, she finally managed to escape from England and tell her story to the French police. Right. So she'd she'd had the wool removed from her eyes. What what do you say? She saw the light. She saw the light. <laughs> I like it. Well, it took a long time, Michelle, and listen mm. to what happened to her first. It's actually quite extraordinary. It turns out that Thierry Tilly had persuaded Christine and the rest of the family, including her own husband and her own children, that her maiden name, which was Cornette de Laminière, I'll try that again, Cornette de Laminière, he convinced them that that word in French meant transmission of metals. And that was a sign that she held the key to some great treasure and had the knowledge of how to access this treasure and that would free her and the rest of them to fulfill their destiny. Okay. So she had the knowledge because of her name and he convinced them. Now she's like, oh, okay, yeah, I do. Oh, God. Basically, what she had locked in her brain, according to Tilly, was the number of a bank account in Brussels. (laughs) I'm sorry. This just gets more and more ridiculous. It does. Well, the way that they wanted to access that number, which was locked so deep in Christine's mind she didn't even know she knew it, was by keeping her prisoner in a small room in one of the Oxford flats, kept awake for days, tied to a chair night and day for around 10 days. Fucking hell. Oh, my God. they would all... Exactly. This is her family. Don't forget her children, her daughter, her son, her nieces and nephews, brother and sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. Was it? I don't know if Ghislaine was there. I don't think she was. But Christine was basically drugged, beaten. They would shout at her. They would take turns, like, berating her. She was banned from going to the toilet or washing. And she was held hostage like this twice. The second time was when they were torturing her. Oh, this is absolutely horrific. Yeah. And it was for about a total of six months she was being held captive for. Fuck, man. And obviously this secret bank account in Brussels, that number never materialised. Well, it did actually. So she was being held from November 2006 to spring 2007 and then again in January 2008. And during this time she was tortured, like I said, and eventually she broke and she made up a string of numbers. So she's released. But then she's taken to Brussels and she can't remember the name of the bank. So they frog march her up and down Brussels to all the high street banks, going to every single one, asking for access to the account. But each one turns her away because they're like, what the fuck? You don't even have an account here. Piss off. Of course, because it's all fucking made up. So they all return to Oxford. I don't know what happens in the interim, but in the spring of 2009, Christine's off, goes to work. She gets herself a job with a Frenchman in the covered markets in Oxford called Robert Puget de Saint-Victor. I think that's his full name. So anyway, Robert, we'll call him Bob, French Bob. (laughs) I think that's what they did call him. I'm not making it up. I think think they called him French Bob. So he had a, a cheese shop in the covered market and he was really reluctant to employ this beaten up old kind of bag lady Mm. she was in her late 50s she had a limp probably because of all the being held hostage by her children but the thing is though they did enjoy speaking french to each other so little bit by little bit he figured out because of the way she spoke and various other tells that she was actually an aristocrat and she'd fallen on hard times so he was he was intrigued so he asked her what happened to all your money and she told him her son guillaume had it she also told Robert, or French Bob, about the torture 
the bank account and how she hadn't been able to remember the number and all the other stuff. And French Bob convinced her she didn't have a memory of it in the first place and to call her son. This is all bullshit. Come on, woman, what's going on here? So he's calling her out. Bullshit. So reluctantly, she says, well, we can't call Guillaume because the phone will be bugged. Oh, my God. Robert, he's just thinking, no, woman, no, this is ridiculous. Come on, make the phone call. The phone's not bugged. Pick up the phone. You've been brainwashed. Exactly. So eventually he convinces her to make this call to her son, which she does, and she puts him on speakerphone in Robert's French Bob's office Yeah. with French Bob listening in. And he couldn't believe the way that this man was talking to his own mother. He said he told his mother in French that she was an old bore and a nightmare. He said to her, mind your own business. Don't worry. Things are under control. Just fucking leave me alone. Robert said he was very, very rude. So French Bob couldn't help himself. He had to pipe up and he said, listen, you little shit. How dare you speak to your mother like this? She's a kind lady. She's trying to contact you. Where are your manners and where's her money? Mm. So Guillaume responds by saying, none of your business. And who the fuck are you, French Bob? He's who the fuck are you? And French Bob says, well, I'm making it my my fucking business. And Guillaume says, well, I don't have to speak with you. And French Bob says, you may not have to speak with me, but you will have to speak to the police. Yep. So that night, French Bob researched old newspaper articles online and found out about the recluses of Montflanquin. So then he realized he had to help Christine to get away. Oh, my gosh. I love French Bob. Go, Bob. French Bob Bob. is actually the hero of this story. Yeah. Because without him, and it had been 10 years, no one else could reach them. Oh, my God. So how did it go? How, How does this all resolve? So the next day, he set about creating an escape plan with Christine and she gave him the number of her old friend, Marie-Hélène Hessel, in Bordeaux, got her in, and they planned a rendezvous in London. Well, Hessel and Christine did, like, um, what's her name again? Marie-Hélène, a few days later, uh, in order to take her back to France, which they pulled off. And then once Christine got back, she met a lawyer called Daniel Picotin, mm-hmm. who was a lawyer and anti-cult crusader <gasps> and had already been approached by Jean Marchand in 2004 and had been working to bring Tilly's activities to light anyway. Wow. I'm feeling I'm feeling like there is going to be a happy ending here. Well, so Christine arrived in Bordeaux in March 2009 and Picotin took her to the courthouse where she told the police her story and immediately the French government pressed charges against Thierry Tilly. The none of the rest of the family did not want to drop him in it. They were still backing him. Right. So nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. And he thought, oh, nothing's going to happen. So he went on a trip to Zurich in 2009 and that's when he was arrested. (gasps) He slipped up. He left the country. Oh, my God. What a dick. Thank God. Do you know what? He was probably going to his, like, Swiss bank account where he had all their fucking money. Of course he was. That's what he was doing. But anyway... At first, some of the members were still thinking that he was their guy. They couldn't believe that the rest of the family were doing this. And then the other kind of enlightened family members were really worried that the rest of them would commit mass suicide. So there had to be some sort of... Monitoring and surveillance. and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you this, but at the end of 2008, Chateau Martel had been sold to a holding company with Christine and Charles-Henri's 
son Guillaume, who's also Thierry Tilly's right-hand man, serving as intermediary for both the buyers and the sellers, which is really unusual. Mm. And apparently Charles-Henri had, or Philippe, I can't remember who had inherited it, I think it was Charles-Henri, signed the papers, but he thought he was signing papers for a loan. So he was <gasps> duped into selling their family, no. their family estate. Oh my God, so they lost their family yeah. home. They did. Shit. And no one knows what happened with the proceeds from the sale. Well, who owns it now? Uh, well, yeah, there's new owners, yeah. But anyway, going back, as a result of that, there was a battle between the family members because Charles-Henri was angry with his son. He began proceedings to divorce Christine and also brought a case against his son Guillaume to reclaim the proceeds from the sale of the Chateau Martel. At this point, Guillaume and Francois. Yeah. Who's Francois? I can't remember. Oh. Is that one of the children? That's one of her kids. They filed for damages also from Guillaume. So they're all battling each other now. They're at each other's throats. Now it's money, money, money time. Come on, let's get our, our money back. We're going back to 2008. We're still there when he sold the chateau. Something really weird happened. And this is in relation to Jacques Gonzalez. Okay. okay. This mysterious Jacques Gonzalez. It was in October 2008 at a motor vehicle registration centre in Croydon in South London. Yep. A man attempted to take a driver's test under an assumed name while wearing a $1,600 latex mask like the ones used by characters in Mission Impossible to transform their identities. Okay, and so the the driving person was like, um, this looks weird. you're a weirdo yeah. and why have you got yeah. a latex face mask on? Oh, it looks oh. weird. Let's call the police. Apparently, this person had paid for a professional makeup artist to glue it to his face at a nearby <gasps> hotel. And like you just said, Michelle, everybody was so weirded out that they called the police. Yeah. Who came to question him. <laughs> and the name used by the man was Jacques Gonzalez, age 60. But when the police got there and the mask came off, they revealed Guillaume de Vadrine. <gasps> Hang on. The son of Charles-Henri and Christine. So Tilly's right-hand right man. man. Yes, the son. The young God. son. God. And all he said was, oh, my little trick hasn't worked. And when police asked him who Gonzalez was, Guillaume said that they shared a house together. And then the police said, well, why why didn't Gonzalez take the test himself? Well, Guillaume told him that he had gone travelling. So despite this bizarre and troubling incident, the police decided it was just a minor offence and issued him a little fine and sent him on his way. Mm, I think they should have gone hard because, do you know what? A driver's licence can be used as ID for all well, sorts exactly. of things. Like, this is not just a minor offence. <gasps> and going to all that trouble of putting a latex mask on your face, I mean, Fucking my God. <gasps> that is crazy. That is crazy. Yep. I would be freaked out. I would be like, yeah. okay, we've got a goer here. <laughs> Oh, so anyway, we're going to flip back again to France. We're back in France now. We've got the cult buster, the lawyer, Picotin. He's on a mission. He wants to rescue the rest of the family because, like I said before, they're all worried that they're going to commit suicide. So he grabs a psychoanalyst, a criminologist and a chauffeur, plus Guillain's estranged hubby, Jean Marchand, mm -hmm. Christine, the ex-wife of Charles-Henri, mm -hmm. the one that was had been beaten. Philippe and Brigitte. So he's got a massive team. They all go to England, to Oxford, and they get the rest of the family. So Christine and Charles-Henri's Charles son, Guillaume, who, let's face it, was probably his mother's captor and torturer under the influence of Tilly, yep. was finally brought around 
in November 09. So okay. eventually, one by one, they all fall and they all Fuck. see the light. And they realise they've all been swindled. And they've all been swindled. And eventually, the fam- the entire family's been saved and the Vadreen family finally renounced Tilly and they rally in the case against him. And this all happens by the end of November 09. Okay. So at this point, Charlery, he finally drops his suit against Guillaume and reconciles with Christine. Nice. Okay. I wonder Aww. if she can forgive him. God knows what he was doing to her while she was being tortured and exactly. kept pissing her pants in a little room. Oh, God. Jean Marchand and Guillaume de Vadrine, who had divorced in 2003, then reconciled in 2009. So they're back together as well. Okay. I just don't know. How, how do you forgive? You know, how do you forgive all that stuff? I don't know. Either it's kind of like for better, for worse, where you just you're sticking with them. You know that that's not the real person. They've been turned. They've been changed, whatever. Um, In Jean Marchand's case, was it because he quite enjoyed being married to someone with so much money? I don't know. You mentioned it earlier. You cast doubt over this guy's um, character, didn't you? When you said, oh, he probably just liked the money. Mm. But he didn't fall for any of this stuff. Yeah. Because he's not an aristocrat, probably, or... Maybe, maybe he is. I didn't look that deeply into him. I'm not sure. Mm. But he he said that when he and his wife finally got back together, that she had no trouble readjusting to normal life and she's not different in any way at all. Okay, what happened to all the money? Where's all the money? Gone. It's gone. It's gone. Fuck. It's gone. Did they, did they sell the Paris block? Yes, it's gone. Everything's it's gone. All, yeah, it's all gone. So Gillan is still living in the area to this day, mm-hmm. as you know, because she did an upholstery course with yep. our friend and quite happy to discuss it all as well. She loves to chat about it, according to Fran. She also wrote a book called Diabolique and a screenplay along with husband Jean Marchand for a film called Wicked Game which is about their time under the influence of Tilly. So if you'd like to know more about it, you can also read that article, which I've just basically lifted from uh, Vanity Fair. Okay. But after Tilly's arrest, the investigators began searching for his accomplices. So what happened? Who is this guy, Jacques Gonzalez? The author of the Angels and Aristocrats article that I'm using as my main source material today, Michelle, Mm-hmm. He actually went searching. He looked that apparently Jacques Gonzalez is quite a popular name in France. And he went searching in Paris and found someone who he thought, you know, around the same age, 60 odd, and found him. The actual one? Well, he wasn't sure. He went up, he knocked on the door. The guy peered around the door uh, with all the locks on and said, hello, in Paris. Right. Which was his first red flag. He's like, why, do, why have you greeted me like that? Well, he, he didn't say anything at the time, but normally he would say bonjour yeah. <laughs> or jubon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he didn't. So that was a red flag. He did let him in eventually. They had a little chat. The author of this article asked him questions to do with the case. And uh, do you know Thierry Tilly and things like yeah. that and the Vadrines? And he he didn't seem surprised and didn't. he said, no, no, I don't know them. No, no. But he didn't look quizzical. He didn't look... He didn't seem sort of like, why are you asking me these things? It was just a very factual, yep, okay, no, I don't know them. Okay, thanks, goodbye. No, it's the dude, it's the dude. It was him and Israel, yes. Oh, my God. The police then found him and another middleman named Pascal. They were all arrested. So then there was a trial in 2012 for Thierry Tilly and Jacques Gonzalez and I think this other guy, Pascal, 
Thierry Tilly was accused of tricking the family out of up to £3.6 million, as well as fraud, mm-hmm. abuse of weakness, violence against the vulnerable and holding people against their will for up to seven days. So the trial ended. Tilly and Gonzalez were sentenced to eight years in prison in November 2012. But when Tilly tried to appeal, blaming the family for their own misfortune, the judge increased his sentence to 10 years. (laughs) Take that. But that means he's going to be out soon. Well, I tell you what, I searched everywhere trying to find information about where he is now, but nothing really shed any light. And I have to say, Michelle, this whole story does feel like there's a lot of holes in it. And it feels a little weird. How convenient was it for the Divadrine family to to fall into this trap was it really him that all the stuff all the Machiavellian stuff behind the scenes or were they complicit now the lady from the secretarial school Martine Gordan she still owed damages by the family and the ex-landlord Andrew Scully they're all out of pocket they're all wondering is it just is Thierry Tilly as bad as he was just a scapegoat. Well... Because they were all there for most of the time. Well, but the thing is, I don't think you willingly lose millions and millions and millions, do you? Do you? And do you willingly beat up your own mother and torture her and keep her captive? I think when you're in the depths of a cult, I don't think anything is normal and I don't think anything's off limits. You know, we've seen, like, with uh, the Keith Ranieri story... That actress who was, you know, quite famous, she went from being famous, having Hollywood at her feet to branding women's vaginas, you know, like, yeah, I don't, the downward slide, I just don't think you can ask whether or not it was, you know, they were in a normal circumstance. Were they complicit? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I just feel like people lose their minds. Look, they could have been complicit. Who knows? I don't know. You have to take responsibility at some point, though, don't you, Michelle? Yes, you do have to take responsibility for stupidity, you know, a, a little bit like what the and French cruelty. court was saying. And cruelty. Yes, you do. Yeah. But were they complicit in losing their fortune and their homes and their mansions and villas and whatever? Was it greed? Was it greed? Did they just want more and more? Did they think that they could raise the stakes and then have better returns? Could be. Who knows? You don't know what this guy Tilly was telling them, you know. No. Uh, more than your life's in danger, shut the doors, I'll protect you. Yeah. And not only did they give him, like, all their money, they, they gave him their minds, you know. They yeah. lost it. They lost everything. They did. And Christine later said that every time somebody expressed a doubt about him, someone else in the family would justify what he was doing. So they were all being manipulated. Right. Oh, my God, Geordie. What a crazy ride. Okay, so having been in the area where all of this took place, what is yeah. the mood of thought? You know, what, is, what do people sort of... I don't know. Conclude. Oh, so you don't know any. (laughs) No. So there's. They're not talking about it in the streets. Mm. This is quite an old case if you think about it. He was sentenced in 2012. The the most recent article I found was 2013. I think maybe there was some comments on somebody's blog in 2021, but nothing that didn't give me any new information. I just wonder because 
if he's still in jail and he's served his 10 years, well, he's due out, out you know. I wonder if yeah. there's going to be renewed interest in this case. Because, you know, Geordie, well, we are quite, watch this space. We're quite on, in the zeitgeist with these things, you know. You did yeah. uh, Gator Rogowski. Thanks to our eavesdroppers. Boom, yes. he's out. That's right. You know, that's right. I wonder if that's going to happen again. And it's not like it was in the news. It was because of a chance meeting and Anna's inquisitive nature. Yeah that this came about because she heard the story from her sister who'd been doing an upholstery course and before you know it, we're deep in our story. Incredible. I will tell you that he's nearing the, like we said, he's nearing the end of his sentence and he's in a prison in Bordeaux and it is believed that he has moved on from cellmate to cellmate quite regularly for fears that he may brainwash them as well. Now, I don't know if that is true or just... Hearsay. (laughs) Hearsay. We don't know, but I quite like the idea of that. Yeah. In a glass case, like Hannibal Lecter. Like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. <laughs> Tierra Tilly. You know, he's dangerous. Like when he gets out, he's going to have a new name and a new MO with all his old tricks. Yep. And, you know, people are going to be at risk again. And Well... Let's tell the world, Michelle. We better warn people. Okay, eavesdroppers, spread the word. Look out for Tiri Tilly. He'll come out. He'll change his name. And Jacques Gonzalez. They're all naughty boys. People! Listen to me! People! Don't do that. People! people. I told you, people. People! Scary stuff. People! Well, Geordie... Honestly, what a wild ride. Thank you so much for that story. My pleasure. Oh, my God. Well, do you know what? Like, I need to just go and process all of that. (laughs) Do you need a little lie down, Michelle? I do need a little lie down. So, but do you know what else I I need to say right now? What's that? What what on earth could it be, Michelle? Whatever you do. (laughs) (laughs) Wherever you are, just just keep. keep. He's dropping. 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 He's dropping.